Man, we have a, a, a doozy of a message this morning. Basically, uh, we're, we're smack dab in the middle of this series that we're doing uh, called Nothing's Off the Table. And the whole idea uh, behind this sermon, I always do like a quick little recap so just where we know where we are. The whole idea behind this series uh, is that Jesus had a lot of conversations around tables, uh, over meals, in fact. And, and the reason that he had poignant conversations, the type of conversations you wouldn't normally have, like not dinner conversations, were had at the table. And the reason for that was that the table was this sacred space of safety and protection. And that was a very literal thing. If someone busts into your dinner party wanting to hurt your guests, you were actually honor-bound to protect them to the point of giving your life up. I mean, it's huge. It's very literal, and it's also beautifully symbolic and, and just a loaded image that Jesus would have these conversations around a table, around a meal with friends and family. And he had more of these conversations at a table than he did in a temple, which is crazy town. More at a table than in a synagogue, than preaching from a stage, right? It was all done around a table. So the whole idea with this series is that we're setting the table and this whole thing is going to be a table and we're going to tackle some stuff uh, that we normally wouldn't tackle in a church scenario. And to do that, what I asked you guys to do was to submit your questions. Um, so we did this anonymously, and I just said, hey, what are the questions that you think are off the table for conversations inside of a church? I want to address that stuff, because here's the thing. It's the things that we don't talk about that affect our faith the most. It's the things that we're scared to bring up in a church situation because, oh, no, we don't talk about that stuff here, or I'm scared to ask that question. But really, those questions of faith could be eating you alive inside, and because no one will talk to you about them or no one will address the big elephant in the room, your faith begins to dwindle, and you begin to get burnt, and you begin to say, okay, I'm out of this. So what we're doing is we're trying to tackle the hard stuff, and here's the thing. I'm asking for a hefty dose, and this is the right crew for this, of maturity, of flexibility, because the stuff that we're handling is going to be interesting. <laughs> it's going to be different. Last week, we handled like kind of what was like the ultimate question is, is who's in and who's out and who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't. And we, we had to wrestle with that. And that was a huge thing. And then this week, the second, the second largest chunk of questions that I got from you guys all were along these lines. If Christianity is supposed to be transformative, how come we really don't look much different than our non-Christian brothers and sisters. Why this tradition? And, and even more to the core of that question, I think, was this, and it's, is this stuff even working? <laughs> right? Does this stuff even work? If we're taking this faith seriously, isn't that supposed to be? Thank you, Michael. If, if we're taking this stuff seriously, it's supposed to be transformative. It's supposed to work. But oftentimes, Christians are very loving, sincere people, but get you going on stuff like security, money, pleasure, uh, money, right? We begin to look remarkably like our non-Christian brothers and sisters. So what sets us apart? What's different about Christianity? I think the key difference in a truly transformed life is that we take the knowledge that God is at work everywhere we go with us. Meaning, we're not bringing God with us into a situation and saying, here's God. When we arrive in a situation, a truly transformed person, one of those people, and we all know someone like this, who they're kind of like humming on a different level. Have you ever met someone like this where you, you sit with them and you sit with them and you just go like, man, this person is wise either beyond their years or there's a deep well here and I'm sensing something much grander going on. Those types of people are often the types of people 
that learn from every single situation and realize that in the good and the bad, God is at work here. God is in this place. God is doing something different. So we talked about this the other week, but it's the nerdiest and funnest thing I can talk about right now because I just discovered it. So uh, we have that Hebrew letter there, Alex. Bingo. Okay, so you can kind of make this out. Alex, you know where the fader is for the lights? It's just that master one far to the right. If we could pull those down just a little bit. Perfect. All right. So this is a Hebrew letter, and it's pronounced bay. Everyone say bay. Bay. <laughs> you never thought you'd say bay in church. All right. So uh, this is a Hebrew letter, and it's called bay. And basically, what this letter does is starts out the entirety of all of the scriptures. So we've talked about the first line and how there's seven words in the first line that then unfold into a seven-part creation process. And the, the, the number seven is all good, and we can create, we can dissect every single word in that first line and learn that there's deeper meaning, but we really should be paying attention even more microscopic to the very first letter, because the reason this is weird, and the reason I bring it up, is because it should not be this way. So in Hebrew poetry, and in almost every kind of ancient poetry, the reason you would know that you are like reading a poem, the reason that you would like, you'd get your bearings and you'd pick something up and you'd read it if you could read at that point, you would read it and the poem would begin, and this was a standard process, the standard as like if you submitted this in school, you would get graded off for not doing this. The poem always begins with the letter A or Aleph, always. That was a standard, standard practice. But for some reason, when we get to this beautiful poem that is Genesis in this first creation account, the writer chooses not to start with A, which would be the norm, but chooses to start it with B. And that is enormously significant because it marks something right from the start that says, hey, this text, this text is going to be different than any other kind of religious text or any other kind of poem that you're going to read. And you just set yourself up for change. We're going to disrupt you right from the beginning. We're going to show you that what you thought should be here is actually going to be over here, and we're going to shift your mind right from the very, very start. But it goes even deeper than that. So this letter, Bay, uh, Bay is within, and so it's literally drawn to look like a house. Do we have that other uh, image? So the reason that it's drawn like this is because it's supposed to house something. And then the tiny dot that was in it is called a dagesh, and what that means is it signalized that God is within this house. And it starts off all of scripture. And so you have this beautiful picture of a home in which Torah and scripture starts out in and lives in and inside. You have the God who is dwelling within everything. Right from the start, from the very first letter. This is crazy stuff. You think he had some help with this text. So God is within all things. When Jacob who's his character in the Bible. It's a whole messy story where he steals his inheritance from his brother uh, and, and runs off and dresses like him. And we can get into that story some other time. But basically, he's on the run from his brother who wants to kill him, as you know, we can all relate. So he's running away from his brother. And in the process, he stops. And, and the Bible describes it this way. He stops and he stops to sleep. And he pulls out a stone and he uses that as a pillow. Now, that's like a throwaway line most of the time. And we just go like, okay, yeah, a stone. But the, the fact that the writer put it in there the fact that it's in there is because that's not a comfortable way to sleep, right? That's not a good way to sleep. You're on the run. You're already hard as a fluttering. It's going to be a dark night of the soul. You can't sleep. And then you're sleeping on a stone. But then Jacob has this vision of this ladder where 
the angels are descending and ascending into heaven and he sees this beautiful picture of God and he wakes up and he wakes up from that terrible night, terrible night of restlessness, sleeping on a rock and saying, surely God was in this place and I, I did not know, right? God is within everything. What sets Jacob apart, what's transformative about that is Jacob takes even the dark, dark, rough night of the soul and says, surely God was in this place. And then he names it bay A, which is Bethel in our language, which means house of God or God dwelling. God is within everything. Jacob's first major revelation and step towards God is to see that God isn't just some otherworldly thing, but that God is in between, he's here, he's now, and he's at work. It's everything, right? I was just um, house-sitting for my folks, and they have a paralyzed dog. It's about 60 pounds, and it's adorable, uh, but it is a lot of work. Uh, and we have a puppy, and so the puppy and the paralyzed dog, they do not get along at all. Like, he is obsessed with her, but she's like, get this little critter out of my face. <laughs> um, and so at night, we would have to separate them, so we'd put Luna in one room, and then we'd put our dog in our room. And that would have been fine, except... Every single bedroom in my parents' house has those like giant wall-to-wall mirror closets that you can't really get rid of. And Baloo, this little nine-month-old puppy, has not ever seen his reflection before. And he still hasn't because I know he's convinced that was not a reflection but another dog in the room. So for like eight nights, we got like sporadic sleep and like the first night was miserable, we maybe got an hour. It made me think of that Jacob story going like, even in this, okay, what, what's in this? Is God really in this? Is God really within everything? See, what sets us apart in the Christian faith is that we need to be students of the moment and say, what can I learn from this? How can this transform me? How is God at work in this? What's he doing? How can I pay attention and how can I react and sit in the moment? I got uh, the wonderful chance to meet uh, the Monsignor over at um, St. Monica's uh, last week. Shout out to Jacob and Mimi who got married. Congratulations, guys. Um, he's not here, so I hope that went well. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but I got to sit down with Monsignor. Monsignor is this just eclectic, like, wonderful human being. He's one of those people that literally is sort of humming on that different level. And in my just five-minute interaction with him, he just sort of grabbed my hand, looked me straight in the eyes, and we were going to do a wedding. And there were all sorts of logistics, and all he wanted to do is just he said, hey, tell me about you. Tell me about yourself. I want to hear about your church. And we sat down, we just talked for five minutes, but I could just tell there was something going on in this person. And here's the key phrase, and I'll never forget this, and I'll keep this with me for the rest of my life. He said, hey, I want to grab breakfast with you because you see things differently than I do. You're a young guy, you're in this town, you're just starting out, and I want to learn from you. Here's a man who's been in this town for 32 years doing ministry. Is it like the top peak game? This church is one of the biggest Catholic voices in all of Southern California. And he takes this 30-year-old 30, 30 dude in a hat, takes him by the hand and says, hey, I want to learn from you. That's what transformation looks like. That's what sets us apart. True transformation is not like change, where something just becomes brand new overnight. Transformation is a slow period. And I think often in our culture of like, fast, 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 I got to get there, I got to get there, I got to get there, we tend to miss the fact that transformation is a slow process. That we'll experience these sort of mountaintop moments, but 
really, what transformation is, is looking back just like Jacob did and saying, man, God was in that, and I, I did not know. But we have to kind of slow our speed down and our expectations down to truly recognize this. There's a Japanese uh, theologian whose name I cannot pronounce, so I will not try. <laughs> uh, but he, uh, he figured out the average walking speed of a human being is about three miles an hour. So some people are faster than that, and some people are way slower than that, but if you stick the average together, the average speed of how we walk is about three miles an hour as the human race. And so he thought about that in terms of reading scriptures and reading these passages where God is walking along, where Jesus is literally walking with people, having conversations, talking with them. And he figured out that if Jesus was sort of sticking with the average of what the human race was doing, Jesus was probably walking around at like three miles an hour. And then he creates this beautiful picture where he says, and if that's true, then we now know that love has a speed. That at three miles an hour, it's too slow. If you really would track that, I tracked it on my phone this week trying to walk, it's a slow pace. It's not this go, go, go pace. It's not 60 miles an hour on the freeway. Did you know that my brother was in a motorcycle accident, so I learned this very vividly, but uh, most of like, the crash dummy tests that they do for like, cars and stuff are all done at 35 miles an hour. So like, those explosive car, you can see videos of them and stuff, and like, crash tests, they're all at 35 miles an hour. And we're humming along at freeway speeds at 60 miles an hour. That's all well and good. I'm like, not, not bashing cars or anything like that, but I'm saying our go-to is as fast as we can go. But the truth of the matter is if we're outpacing that kind of three-mile-an-hour speed, we can't follow Jesus. Who are we following? We're out ahead. We're doing other things. The point is to transform is to slow down and to say, what can this moment teach me? What does God have for me right here, right now, in all of this? There it is. <laughs> what does God have for me right now that I can hold on to, that I can learn from, that I can transform myself within. That's the difference. And here's the thing. A lot of time in church, we do a really good job of teaching people how to, how to transform through joy, right? Like the songs we sing are all kind of like rah, 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 yes, here we go, yay. And, and then we're really good at celebration and we're really good at like lifting people up when they're on those mountaintop moments and saying like, good for you, congratulations, now learn from this. And that's transformative. But God isn't just in those moments. In fact, God is often more in the pain and in the hurt and in the process. I think we need to do a better job of equipping people to learn how to transform their pain rather than transfer their pain. Rather than to like, because hurt people hurt people. We all say it, hurt people hurt people. So when we are hurt, we're naturally going to hurt other people unless we can learn how to transform that pain and use it to transform each other. That is the difference in the Christian faith. And it trickles down to our prayer life, too. Like when we're praying, what's the go-to method for prayer, right? Maybe you close your eyes, you bow your head, and then what? And then you start talking, right? Talk, 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 talk. And there's even this un underlying pressure, especially if you're praying out loud, to say all the right words, right? If I could just pray this way, God will hear my prayer and it will be answered. And none of that is true. In fact, most of the time when we see Jesus going off in his, in his prayer life, he's going for times of solitude and quiet. 
He's there to listen. To listen. Sometimes prayer is not petition, but it's participation. Prayer is just going to God and just listening. That is how we transform. Not by just chatter, 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 fill the space, but actually allowing space for God to come into that and transform our lives. That's where the big stuff happens. So we can't talk about transformation without talking about one of the weirdest scriptures in the Bible where Jesus literally transforms in front of someone. And I love weird ones. This one gets there. So uh, let's go to that scripture there. Um, this, is, uh, this is like kind of in the middle of the book of Matthew. Uh, and Jesus is taking kind of his, his sort of most inner circle, and he's taking them on to a mountain, and he gives them no sort of like pretext of like what's going to happen once they get there. But he just says, come with me. Um, so we'll unpack this as we go, but let's read this together. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So right here, before we move any further, uh, this seems like, why are they saying after six days? We don't have a lot of context for that. But actually, when you read the book of Matthew, it doesn't really make sense there anyway. Basically, what the six days and the mountaintop are there, they are there as a type scene or a remez. What a remez is, is it's a hint. It's showing you something and it's saying, hey, this mirrors something else. Pay attention to the details here. And the six days and the mountain, that's exactly the same amount of period uh, and exactly the same space where Moses went when he was transformed and he saw the glory of God. So for the ancient Hebrew reader, when they're reading this, they're going, oh, this is kind of like a Moses moment. For us, we're like, why? There's six days in there. But it's kind of like a Moses moment. So uh, next slide, please. There he was, transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, the three appeared before them, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. So again, this is a type scene. It's a remez. It's, it's hearkening back to the same experience that Moses has. But I want you for a second just to place yourself in the shoes of these disciples, these, these guys who have been following this Jesus uh, rabbi. This wasn't at the point where they were like, this guy's the Messiah. This is a rabbi. This is a teacher. And all of a sudden, you're standing on a mountain, and the glory of God is shining around you, and there are three things. What are you going to do? Right? If you're a good disciple, what's your go-to? And a lot of this, they just, they literally fall to the ground, but this is important, and this is a Peter move, and Peter's kind of the most brash of all the disciples. Pay attention to what he does here. Um, so Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So Peter is being like that extra credit student right now. He's being the teacher's pet, and he's going, oh, it's excellent that we are here. Thank you so much for bringing us here, Jesus. And you know what? I'm here. I'm going to erect three monuments, which would be the standard thing to do. That's what Jacob did when he marked Bethel. He put up a monument, right? This is the religious right thing to do. Let's structure this. Let's make this its own thing. Let's define it. Let's put it in a box. I'll build three structures. I know how to do that. And this is really important. The next, the next uh, verse says, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love, whom with I am well pleased. And pay attention to that last part. Listen to him. Listen to him. So the response, while Peter's still talking, while he's doing the thing of like, let's structure, let's, let's do this, like, let's make this its own religion, let's make this its own thing, and he's trying to petition, and he's just like us in prayer, and we're talking and talking and talking. While Peter's still gabbing away, God literally speaks in. 
And the only command in terms of when Jesus is actually being transformed before their eyes, the only command that we have in that moment is to listen. When we are in the presence of true transformation, the opportunity is to listen. Not to mark it with a structure, not to put it into a spreadsheet, not to get all the markers in, baptisms and and conversions, not any of that stuff. The thing that God is speaking into these disciples that he wants them to learn is that, hey, I get it. I know you want to build things. I know you want to put this in a box. I know you want the glory for that. But all I want you to do, your only command, is just to listen to him. Just listen to him. What's remarkable is that in moments of great pain and great fear, the hardest thing for us to do is to just pause and listen. In fact, it's the last thing that we kind of want to do. But here's, here's what happens. When God speaks into this, you have to remember in the Hebrew tradition, if you hear God or see God, there's a high likely, likelihood that you will die. <laughs> right? So they are very freaked out at this point. And here's what happened next. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. So this is when fear enters the room, right? And the disciples go, oh my gosh, what do we do with this? And what they do to react to that fear is to flee, right? It's fight or flight. There's two options that we can do when we run into fear. We can try and fight it, or we can try and run away from it. And they fall face down like little ostriches and try to put their heads in the ground so they can't see anything, right? But here's what's remarkable. An angry God would have kept them there, right? An angry God would have gone, yes, you should be face down and bowed and absolutely scared of me. But what Jesus does, his reaction to their flight, is he literally comes up to them and he touches them and he says, get up. Which is a very important marker for us when we think about kneeling and bowing and all this kind of stuff. In the early Jesus tradition, there was none of that. Because this was the command to get up. Because my love for you is this strong, you can stand up. And then he mentions this thing, which Jesus probably says more than anything else in the whole scripture. He just says, do not be afraid. Father Richard Rohr talks about this. Uh, Somebody gathered up all of the instances in scripture where there is either a do not fear or do not be afraid or fear not, any sort of utterance of that. And the person found that when they put those all together, that phrase has been spoken in the scripture 365 times. 365 times. Again, like it's like they've got help with this or something. 365 times, do not be afraid. You see, what transformation looks like, what can set us apart, what can truly look different, is that in moments of great fear, where things are piling up, or great tragedy, we're to respond with empathy, but not fear. With empathy, but not fear. We can embrace what's going on because we realize that the moment is our teacher and that this can transform us. We can embrace it. There's a really, really, uh, it it sums up kind of the whole idea of what we can do uh, with pain and suffering uh, and fear. And it all happens at the very end of this gospel uh, in this this scripture where Jesus is about to be arrested. Let's let's read through this. Um, When they looked up, oh, I'm sorry. Did I not have that scripture in there? Oh, 
All right, we're skipped to the end now. Uh, let's go through the scripture there. The arrest happens at the end of the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and basically what happens is they're at a garden. Jesus is praying. He says to his disciples, hey, please stay awake for me. I'm going to go and pray, but keep watch because he knows something's going to go down. And then he goes in and he comes out and they're sleeping. Now, a little like context for this. Uh, the reason that they're sleeping is they just came from a Seder, a Passover Seder, in which you have to drink four glasses of wine. So those dudes were toast. Anyway, they're sleeping. He comes back and then all of a sudden, this huge mob appears, soldiers, Pharisees, priests, just a very eclectic group of people. And they've all come in the middle of the night to seize Jesus. And in this moment, here's this moment where everyone is going to be paralyzed with fear. The soldiers and the Pharisees are just as scared. There's a reason that they're doing this in the middle of the night because they know how loved Jesus is by the whole city and this grand thing that he's already done the entire week. So they're nervous, they're scared to death. And then Jesus' disciples are absolutely scared to death because they don't know what's going to happen, not only to their teacher, but to them, right? If he gets arrested, I'm going to go down too. So there are two different instances, and I think it points to just this beautiful picture of humanity and how we deal with that fear. One of the followers decides to pull out a sword and tries to attack a soldier. That's the fight, right? But Jesus says, no, 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 none of that. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So he rebukes him and he stops that. And then there's this really interesting part, and it's a cameo, but it must be spoken about. There's a guy that flees and ends up fleeing naked. That's in there. So what happens is he just drops his garment and he runs away. We have a streaker in the middle of the arrest account in scripture. He, and it, it's in there. It says the man lost his garment and was naked and fled. So there's the flight. But the word for this young man in the Greek text is uh, kionos. Kionos, young man. And that word is only used twice. Only word twice. It's used in this arrest account, and it's used again at the end. We'll come to that part later. But so we have the fight, and we have the flight, and then we have Jesus, who often offers up a third path. Right? God, God doesn't fight. God doesn't flight. God goes through. It's an embrace. So Jesus willingly walks up and he even says to Judas, do what you've come here to do. And even more, to hammer that embrace thing home, he is embraced with a kiss or betrayed with a kiss. An intimate embrace. All this pointing to, I'm ready to transform. And the transformation process only happens when I step into this, when I embrace this when I am not afraid, when I embrace what's going on. So how does this link in to our own personal transformation? Well, to talk about that, we must talk about the naked man just a little bit more. So that young man who fled, and the word kionos, again, in the Greek, is only used twice. The young man flees, and then his garment is there. And what's beautiful is his garment stays there, and then there are all sorts of like wacky, fun Da Vinci Code theories that like maybe that was the robe that Jesus was wrapped in. I'm not going to go there, but it's fun. It's out there. Um, but they, when they arrive at the tomb, this goes down. So we have the scripture for that. That was the one, Alex, that I had. Like, sweet. This is uh, when Mary is going to go to the tomb. The, the women are preparing to prepare Christ's body with the burial. They don't know how they're going to get the stone open, but they're, they're, they're going they're going to do it proper because they loved Jesus and they want to see this go through the right way. But they get there, and when they arrive, they're pretty shocked because all of a sudden that big heavy stone they were worried about is already rolled away. 
And they've walked in, and they come to a remarkably different picture than what they thought. They said when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. So this young man is the same exact word as the young man that fled, the young man that was naked. And you have to understand, in those days, nudity wasn't just like shameful. It was downright shameful. If you saw someone nude, it, the shame was actually on you. Nudity was this huge thing. And you have to remember, it's all based upon like shame and guilt. What's the very first thing God does to provide for us? He sends us out, he sends Adam and Eve out, and he makes clothing to protect that nudity. When Adam and Eve first realize where they are and they've eaten that fruit, what do they do? They try and sow fig leaves in a like, terrible attempt to cover up. Because all of a sudden there's this body shame, there's shame in the world. And so when this young man runs away, it's a picture of shame, it's a picture of fear, it's a picture of guilt. But now we see this same young man, and he's sitting in the tomb on the right side, which at any table in ancient Hebrew would have been the side of honor, and now he's dressed in white, just like Jesus was when he was transformed on that mountaintop. This is a picture of human transformation. Instead of fighting, instead of fighting, now this young man is sitting in the tomb with the grief, embracing it, and he's found resurrection. And he's found life. And look what he's now able to say to these women who have come. He says, do not be afraid. He said, you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So again, I don't want to get into like the literal dynamics here. I don't know if that's literally the same young man. I don't know if it's an angel. All I know is the same word is used there twice. And in one instance, there's shame, and there's guilt, and there's pain. And in the next, there's transformation to the point that he's encouraging the other people to not be afraid. A transformed life doesn't just end with you. It doesn't just transform us, and so we're not afraid. No, the transformed life calls us outside of ourselves and calls us to others to say, do not be afraid. And then the directive is to go find him. Look at that as a picture for what the church could do to share the love of Christ and the gospel. First of all, do not be afraid. This is a safe place. Everyone is welcome here. Do not be afraid. And after that, then go find him. Then go find him. The transformed life is always going to help us move forward and transform others as well. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, for your word, for how intricate it is, for how beautiful it is, for how much we can pull out of that context. And I thank you that you've given us a picture of what transformation looks like, and it looks like just sitting in that tomb with the knowledge of resurrection, encouraging others to not be afraid. I pray that you'd make us students of the moment this week, that we would learn that we pay attention to every moment that we're in and ask how you're at work. To ask, surely God is in this place and I, I didn't know. 